So we are continuing our series looking at the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And these are qualities that we ought to be able to observe uh, in the life of every Christian believer uh, as a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and with us uh, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And today we are looking at gentleness. And so I'm going to use Jesus himself as a case study uh, in gentleness. We'll get to John 4 in a moment if you want to keep a thumb in that page of the Bible. Um, But let's just dig in a little bit into gentleness. There's a hymn uh, by Wesley uh, that begins, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Um, And when I was growing up, I would um, hear people refer to these kinds of words, to those words, uh, to point to a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and suggest that the church and our mission needs to present uh, a fuller picture of him. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And I think they're right uh, in a culture where perhaps the only engagement that people might have uh, with the Christian story is Jesus' birth at Christmas. The word gentle Jesus, meek and mild, might well evoke uh, the sense that Jesus has a baby-like quality. Uh, that, he would, that he never moved beyond uh, the baby in the feeding trough in Bethlehem. Let's stay there for a moment. When we read the the nativity, uh, the birth of Jesus, what are we meant to see? The mystery of Jesus who is fully human and yet at the same time fully God, fully divine. But in becoming a baby, we see something of his humanity and his divinity. It tells us something about the kind of man he is, and the kind of God he is. He was not ashamed to become tiny, weak, fully dependent on Mary and on Joseph. The Son of God humbled himself and became the tiniest and weakest for the sake of the world. And I think that posture in many ways continues into the rest of his life. The whole idea of God becoming human, so much weaker and poorer than he was in heaven. It is dramatic that it is somehow both (coughs) mighty and gentle at the same time. And we just heard from Isaiah 11, a prophecy about Jesus written hundreds of years before he was born. And it paints a picture of Jesus who is both mighty and gentle. Verse 2 says that he will have the spirit of counsel and of might. A counselling word is a gentle word, usually. But a word of might is firm, it's powerful. And yet in Jesus Christ, this seeming contradiction is in harmony. And we see in this bit from Isaiah that the society that Jesus is going to establish, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, embodies this seeming contradiction of mighty gentleness with a whole sweep of strange pictures Isaiah writes, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The mighty predator will be equal with the weak and feeble prey. The cobra will be the playmate of the infant. Such gentleness can only exist through a mighty supernatural move of God. And if you can think of a better phrase than mighty gentleness, uh, let me know after the service, but that's all I can really think of. Mighty gentleness. Jesus embodies that phrase. So let's look at John 4 uh, as this case study for how we too can exhibit gentleness in a Jesus-like mighty way. So Jesus is heading back to Galilee and uh, we read, if you read with me, in John 4 verse 4, it said, now he had to go through Samaria. Now Samaria, uh, the way I remember it, is Samaria is literally some area. It was some area between uh, Judea, which is where Jerusalem was and, uh, and is, uh, in the south of uh, modern day Israel, Palestine, that whole region down in the south was Judea. And then in the middle, you had sort of Samaria, uh, which is the Midlands, uh, and then the north, where Jesus was from, that was uh, Galilee. And so Galilee was like an independent administrative area. Judea uh, also was. But they were both the regions of the Jews, the Jewish people. But Samaria, the Samaritans, were a distinct people group. And they had their own culture, uh, their own different way of life. And as I say, they were a different people group with a, a different religion. It was similar to Judaism, uh, the, the Judaism that Jesus practiced, but not the same. And there was great hostility between the Jews, the people of Judea and Galilee, and the Samaritans. So that's where Jesus is. And it was the quickest route uh, between Judea, where he had been down in the south, and Galilee. So as we heard, Jesus sits down by a well. It was the middle of the day, the, heart, the hottest part of the day. And in verse 7, read with me, it says... When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So two strange things are happening here, just to hold these in your mind. The first is that Jesus is alone, and it was strange in those days for a man to strike up a conversation with a woman when it's just the two of them. And the second strange thing is that the woman is coming out to get water, which involved carrying heavy containers, lugging stuff around, in the middle of the day, the warmest part of the day. Because it was so warm, the women would have done this in the morning, first thing, or in the evening, uh, but not in the middle of the day. It's why they're the only people there, because everyone else is going, it's too hot to be out. So that's two strange things. Jesus starts a conversation with women. Secondly, why is she getting water in the middle of the day? And the woman instantly picks up on the strangeness of Jesus talking to her. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We obviously don't know how she said it. Uh, was she surprised? Was she enraged? Was she confused? What's interesting is that Jesus ignores that straight away. Uh, and he cuts to why he's chosen to be there speaking with her. Verse 10. 
Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is there for her good. He's there for her provision, for her well-being. The imagery of God as a source of living water was well known to the Jewish people, to Jesus' people, but not to the Samaritans. The Samaritan Bible only contained the first five books of of our Bible, what we call the Torah, the Pentateuch. And that imagery wouldn't have been known to her. It wasn't very developed in those first five books. And that's why she's confused. But what we'll see is that she goes on this journey from being confused about it, to wanting it, to having it, and then to telling everyone about it. Jesus carefully, deliberately, gently, and mightily is going to take her on that journey. As I said, she's confused. She probably has never heard anyone speak of living water. Um, And verses 11 to 12 are all about that confusion. And Jesus responds, saying in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying to this woman, and I'm sorry that we don't know her name, um, but he's saying your condition, the human condition, is like someone who is thirsty. When you're thirsty, you know something is missing. You don't feel fully alive. He's saying that's what being human is like. Something's missing. You're deprived. You're not running at optimum. I've come to bring you into a relationship with the living God who will quench your thirst eternally. That's what Jesus is claiming to offer uh, you and me and the Samaritan woman at the well. So she goes from being confused very quickly to actually wanting it. She says in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And have to keep coming here to draw water. She wants it, but she hasn't completely got it, has she? Um, Because it's hard to know what she thought, but she thinks they're still talking about something to do with quenching actual physical thirst. uh, Normal water in some way. Jesus then does something quite left field. He says, verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Why would he say that? a strange thing and she's thrown off by this she says uh, verse 17 I have no husband Jesus said to her you are right when you say you have no husband the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have now is not your husband what you've just said is quite true it was strange that she was out in the middle of the day and this is why the only reason why you would go out at this time when all the other women, all the other people were indoors, is because you didn't want to see anyone. This woman was suffering from shame. In those days, a woman couldn't choose to be divorced. A man could decide on his own to do that. And this has happened to her five times. 
And now she was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And we don't know whether she is the victim, the perpetrator, or a combination of both. But this is the source of her shame. And this complete stranger, a foreigner, a man, has just had the audacity to bring this up. And she says in verse 19, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. She is amazed that he knows this. If someone came up to you, a total stranger, and told you stuff about yourself that you know that they couldn't know, especially something you're ashamed of, you would tremble. And she is clearly uncomfortable. She recognises Jesus as a prophet, as far as she knows. The only way that she, as far as she's concerned, the only way he could know this is if God had told him. That's what a prophet is. And so she's so uncomfortable that she tries to change the subject. She says, verse 20, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claimed that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Some of you might have had an experience like this, where you're talking with someone about your faith, uh, your faith in Jesus, and it gets uncomfortable for them for whatever reason, and they try and change the subject. Uh, they might say something like, oh, well, um, uh, my dad was a Protestant, but my mum's a Catholic, so who knows who's right? The woman at the well tries to do that by switching to talking about worship, uh, about theology. But implied in that is to get him to discuss with her his take on the hostility between their two, their two peoples. But Jesus isn't going to be derailed quite so easily. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying, a new day is coming and it's related to this living water. The divisions between people will break down. The lion and the wolf will lie down together, as it were. But he's unwilling to say, who knows who's right? He's absolutely clear that this, day, that this day will come through the Jewish people. What does that mean? God had promised through Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, that his descendants would bless the whole world. And he returns to the point that there is a way for people from both those groups to have a relationship with the living God. Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. He said it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Samaritan woman, a woman in shame, or whether you're a rabbi. The living water, God himself, is making himself available to all people who drink of him. And I think she's still a bit confused, but she is getting there. Because in verse 25 she says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, Messiah, Christ, same word, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So this is clearly now striking a chord with her. Uh, but she's not quite convinced, convinced. But Jesus then drops the bombshell. Verse 26. 
I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is that special person through whom God would save the world. So what is the outcome of this strange interaction? Right then, at that moment, they're interrupted by the disciples who've come back. Uh, They're shocked to see him speaking uh, with a woman, but they don't ask anything, interestingly. The woman gets up and she leaves the water behind because she's just got it. She's just understood that the living water is available to her. That everything Jesus has been speaking to her about is for her. And she goes into town and to the people that she was ashamed of. And with boldness, uh, she says, verse 29, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She's been transformed by this gentle but mighty encounter with Jesus. And the people of the town, they listen to her. They've probably not seen her in a very long time. They're shocked that this change has happened in her. And when they get there, John tells us um, in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. The woman, ashamed to go out that day, through one meeting with Jesus, became the first evangelist to her people. There are people in heaven because of her testimony. Because she told them that a living water is available to them. So how then are we to live? What are we to make of this? I said it's gentle and it's mighty. Jesus is having a difficult conversation, one that is fueled by his hearing from God about this woman's difficult relationships. But he does it in such a way that she always um, she always stays talking to him. She doesn't freak out and run away. And I think that's because there's just something about him that's so gentle. Jesus, I think, was always prepared to have people walk away. I can't think of an instance, maybe you can, where Jesus starts talking to someone, they get disappointed, and he sort of chases them down the road. In John 6, just a couple of chapters later, he has another tough conversation, or he's actually giving a talk, and on a similar theme, and people are really offended. And the majority of the crowd go home. And Jesus actually even turns to his own disciples, the twelve, and says, well, do you want to go away too? Jesus was always prepared for people to go away. And I think there's something in that. Jesus never chased them down. He was always prepared for them to go away. But he was equally prepared to have the tough conversations, like with this woman. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter writes, Always be prepared. To give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We have to be prepared to give the answer for the hope we have. Which Peter is referring to the gospel. The living water that Jesus is speaking about. Like Jesus we need to speak mighty and supernatural but uncomfortable truths sometimes. We have to tell people that they're missing something, that they're deprived, that they need living water. They need their sins forgiven. They need God in their life. 
but like Jesus, may we do it with gentleness and respect. Why don't we stand together?